and for the last time in 2011 it's the movie hour good morning daniel mumby good morning richard dale and a merry christmas to you before we get started why is it what can you still not hear me no you're sort of bit bit tinny uh, okay well what if i sort of lean in like that is that that, any that sounds a bit better yes. okay if we don't get it working we had a lot of people in the studio yesterday it's probably uh, yes. all a bit chaotic as a result this morning but uh, i shall twiddle the knobs and see if we can get it to work so you're ready for christmas yeah uh, all the shopping's done all the cards have been uh, handed out and posted and uh, yeah we had a very nice uh, meal out at uh, six at the Baltic last night, so we're getting into the festive spirit. Very nice, very nice. And you've been watching uh, one of my favourite films of all time, Saving Grace. Yeah, no, um, I have to confess that when you, I mean, I was, I go into any film with an open mind, I have to say that when you lent me the DVD case, I was a little bit put off by it. <laughs> it does look like that, the sort of, the cheery, sugary, feel-good comedy that I tend to stay away with, but... I did find myself really charmed by it. I don't think it's a brilliant film by any means, but and I'm, but um, no, Nigel Cole is is a very reliable, you know, heartwarming, feel-good director. And obviously, the story owes a lot to local hero. Yeah. Um, so it, you could almost argue it's local hero in Cornwall minus the oil. But um, yeah, I found it you no know, very funny. I think in the last ten minutes it did go a bit mad. Yes, that's and, uh, a nice way of putting it, yes. isn't it? Yes. But other than that. I no, I I almost found myself warming to it in spite of myself. And while my head was saying, plots all over the place, not very well directed, seen this a hundred times before, this should be on marble. My heart was thinking, yeah, you know what? I really care about these people, and yes. it's quite funny. Yes. So thank, thank you very much for letting me follow. It that. was fun. It was fun. No, I liked it. Like a little bit different to the normal format. No cult classic this week because no, we're no. looking back at the uh, the top films of 2011 and maybe one or two of the turkeys as well. Mm, just nice. one or two. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, before that, uh, and no local films this week because uh, the Playhouse and the Maltings have both gone on their Crimbo holidays. Mm -hmm. um, so we'll just look at the top ten, shall we? Why not? And at number ten, My Week with Marilyn. Which is pretty good fluff. It's, you know, essentially a costume drama with loads of famous people playing loads of famous people. I really like Eddie Redmayne. I like the fact that Kenneth Branagh is, you know, having huge amounts of fun playing Laurence Olivier. It's at its best when it knows that it's fluff and uh, it's generally very good. Right, I'm just going to... I'm just going to twist your microphone around a little bit because I'm having real problems hearing you properly this morning. Let's see if that's any better, shall we? Can at, you hear me now? At number nine, it is uh, a very Harold and Kumar. Which is a, a stoner comedy that does what it says on the tin. The 3D isn't necessary, but they do at least do a sort of gimmicky, trashy uh, thing with it. It's, no, for lads' night out viewing, it's quite funny. I don't think it's, it plays to a very wide audience, but it's perfectly okay. At number eight, Twilight Saga. Um, no, I'm glad that it's taking money. I think that it's a flawed film in the sense that the body horror stuff isn't directed with quite the sort of vim and integrity that you would get from someone like David Cronenberg or, in a certain extent, Clive Barker. But I think it's good that a film which is mainly geared toward teenage girls is taking money because there's precious few of them out there. Uh, number seven, um, one of the Christmas animations. It's been around forever, this one, hasn't it? Happy Feet 2. Well, for a few weeks, at any rate. I mean... I have just a feeling of disappointment about the way that George Miller's career has turned out, because of course he started out in the Mad Max series, and no, Babe was perfectly decent, no, the, the sequel wasn't that good, and since then he's, he's become stuck in this innocuous children's friendly animation, there's, there's nothing offensive or objectionable about Happy Feet 2, it's sort of in one ear and out the other and you quickly forget about it. Another happy Christmas film at number six is Hugo. Which is Martin Scorsese returning to form after a few years of not really knowing what to do with himself. I really like all the touches in it about the mechanics and the origins of early cinema, which we'll come back to in a 
in a different way when we review the artist in a few minutes' time. But I do think that Scorsese has managed to do all that sort of self-referential stuff while maintaining an aura of childlike wonder. It's highly recommended, but you don't necessarily have to see it in 3D. At number five, I have to say, not particularly liked by the uh, by the critics. Uh, it's uh, New Year's Eve with Halle Berry, John Bon Jovi, Robert De Niro. It's a bit of a cast list, isn't it? It is a cast list, but it is effectively a, it's a guest list film in the sense that it's a load of famous people turning up so they can pay the rent. There's no story. It's shambolically directed by Gary Mar. It's it's horrible, basically. Right. Number four, the film I really want to go and see is Puss in Boots. Yeah, and I, I don't blame you because it looks pretty decent. I think it's certainly better than the third and fourth Shrek films, if only because it's concentrating primarily on being funny rather than let's get the arch stuff in and then maybe remember to be funny, which is where the third and fourth Shrek films fell into. I think the story's all over the place, but it's worth seeing just for Antonio Banderas's performance. Uh, number three, Arthur Christmas. Not first-rate Aardman. I mean, I think it's, it, it's clearly striking a chord with audiences. I can see it being a future festive favourite on Christmas TV, maybe in two years' time, but you won't remember it as fondly as Curse of the Were-Rabbit. But it has got the lovely Imelda Staunton in it. Yeah, and Imelda Staunton can pretty much do no wrong. I mean, she was in that... Um, that terrible film about someone running over people with a tube train, which I can't remember. Three and out. But that's, that's, that aside, she's had a pretty immaculate career. Now, oh, good morning, May, by the way, if you're listening this morning. Uh, May was telling me that she was in Newcastle earlier this week with uh, the grandchildren to see Alvin and the Chipmunks and loved it. Okay. Um, Unlike some of the critics. How old are her... Did she oh, have seen on her own? Yeah. Sort of yay high, yay high. <laughs> yes, that's the best way to describe it on radio. I mean, I don't think it's as good as the first two. Basically, I think that the plot very quickly runs out of steam, and uh, the castaway jokes do do the the bad Shrek thing of you know one joke for the adults, one joke for the children, and hope that they'll meet in the middle. I mean, I'm glad that their children, her children, had a good time. Don't let yes. me. Can, I'm not going to try and persuade them that they didn't enjoy it, even though they did. Um, but it's not for me. And singing along, apparently. Well, that's fair Things enough. to sing along to, I'm told. Okay, well, no, there other opinions are available. Yes, right. And at number one, Sherlock Holmes, A Game of Shadows. Which is pretty much as good as the first one. The first one is Guy Ritchie's best film. It is longer and baggier and louder, but it's every bit as much fun. I think that Robert Downey Jr. and Jude Law are perfectly cast as Holmes and Watson. I like Jared Harris's Moriarty very much, although I think the definitive Moriarty must still be Eric Porter from the Jeremy Brett versions, just because the... the the amount of lines on his face, yeah. he was born to play that role. Um, I think, you know, the film in the end is about the relationship between Holmes and Watson, because, you know, one of them's getting married, the other one doesn't want the other guy to get married, and it's, so it's a bromance in many ways, but it's not a sort of anti-women bromance, it's a really enjoyable action romp. Yes, and allegedly on the TV series version of it over New Year, uh, or just after New Year, is uh, Sherlock Holmes having a romance of his own? Yeah, because they're, they're doing um, a scandal in Belgravia, I think, yes. is the first one, which will be interesting. But the, the thing I really want to know is how they're going to get out of the swimming pool where they left them in the, the last yeah, one. Yeah, it will be very interesting yes, to see. Uh, Count Moriarty. Yes, that's right. Well, we'll have, into the goon show then. We'll have a little break and then have a look at the new releases. Heart of the district. This is Lionheart Radio. Lovely song. Shame about the film. Bing Crosby and White Christmas. I think we've done a few technical changes here. Hopefully we're sounding a bit better. Yeah, I feel like that moment on Phoenix Nights when Max and Paddy are playing with the, the walkie-talkies and he keeps running around going, Can you hear me now? Yes, I can hear you now. That was good. <laughs> so there's a couple of new releases for Boxing Day and then a couple for New Year. Should we do the Boxing Day ones yeah, first? Yeah, I think we should. Uh, the first one it looks like being one of the, uh, the big budget movies of the year. That is uh, Mission Impossible 
Hawk Ghost Protocol. Yeah. And there's a picture of uh, a clip from that in yesterday's journal. He's looking more and like more and more like an X Man every time, isn't he? This is Tom Cruise. You're yes, to. it's sort of one of these bolt-on hands. <laughs> bolt-on hands. Okay. Well, you look at it. Look at it. On his... Yeah, this is radio, Richard. I mean, okay. Yes. I'm trying. To, it is unusual. Yeah, it, it's a bit Inspector Gadget. Anyway, bit, so uh, the critics seem to love it. Yeah, um, Mission Impossible As Ghost Protocol, which is the fourth in the series of films based on or deriving from the TV series of the 60s and 70s, which gets repeated seemingly every Sunday afternoon on a certain channel. Um, I mean, you, you go through the Mission Impossible series, I mean, have you seen any of the previous films? Uh, yes, in all three of them. Right. Yes, uh, it's because you've got the first one, which is directed by Brian De Palma, who made Carrie, whom we yeah. talked about, and that in many ways is the closest one to the TV series. Yeah, I think it probably was, yeah, wasn't it? And, and you know, a good performance by Vanessa Redgrave. The story was a bit all over the place but it was very stylish yeah. um then you get mission impossible 2 which is directed by john woo who's you now an, an action director did face off and you no know, had very balletic yeah. sequences but terrible south african accents <laughs> and richard rocks were wondering yeah. i think i break his jaw which yes. is not entirely tolerable then you get mission impossible 3 directed by jj abrams who uh, most recently made super a and was involved with behind the scenes with cloverfield which I found rather incoherent and disposable. I don't know how you felt about it. Yeah, um, I don't particularly like any of the films, I've got yeah. to say. Maybe I just uh, attracted to the, um, the the joy of the TV series, which I did used to love. Yeah. It's a bit corny these days, but I did used to like it with um, Lemon, Leonard Nimoy. Leonard Nimoy. I've been on too Leonard long Nimoy this morning. And yes. um, Peter Graves? Was yes, it? that's right. Yeah, Good morning, which, Mr. Fox. And uh, I did have a bit of an issue with the films, because I think they're a bit too black for me. Yeah, I think that the first one, like I say, is the closest to the yeah. series. So this instalment is directed by Brad Bird, who's best known as an animator, because he, he's worked with Pixar. He made The Iron Giant, which was loosely based on the Ted Hughes book, The Iron Man, and he's actually, you know, very charming and sweet and sort of yeah. a little bit sub-Spielberg, but it does its job. He's most famous for directing The Incredibles, which pretty much everybody other than me likes. I have to say I found it a little bit underwhelming when I first saw it, and no, most recently before this he made Ratatouille, which again was just <laughs> a bit too shiny and a bit too innocuous even for Pixar. So, the, the plot of this is, it begins with a massive explosion surrounding the Kremlin, in which part of the Kremlin is destroyed, and that leads to IMF, the Impossible Mission Federation, being shut down or outlawed. So Ethan Hunt, played by Tom Cruise and his staff, including uh, Simon Pegg, who was in the third film, and a newcomer, played by Jeremy Renner, who was in The Hurt Locker, um, they are put under ghost protocol, which is they have to work unaided, so without the support yeah. of the state, you know, like, it's like the thing they say at the start of the, uh, the series, if you're caught or killed, the, yes, the, we'll the, the you, secretary yes. will disown you and so forth, but that's not that luxury they don't have anymore, and they have to work undercover to stop a madman from treating triggering a massive nuclear weapon and basically ending the world. Um, when I first heard about this, my initial reaction was, do we really need another one? I mean, I'm, I have a slight soft spot for the first film in the series, but like you, I'm, I don't hold much, I'm not so loyal to the other two, not just in terms of them cranking up the action, but just that, the feeling of whether or not they're, ne they're necessary. And they seem to have increasingly moved away from having any semblance towards the source material, towards being effectively Tom Cruise's pension plan. Yeah. They have become his equivalent of the Die Hard series, of the stuff that he, you know, brings out of the cupboard and does another one of whenever he yeah. needs the money. And this will undoubtedly take money, um, partly because Tom Cruise's name, you know, for all the cruise bashing that's been going on for the last few years, yeah. he does still have currency. And, you no, know, people will go and see another Mission Impossible film because they like the brand. 
So as popcorn entertainment goes, it's got all the usual whistle and bells in the sense that you've got big CG explosions, you've got people jumping off buildings, which looks yeah. particularly extraordinary in IMAX. But after it's over, you very quickly forget it. And like the third one, it's incredibly disposable and incredibly by the numbers. So my advice is go and watch the Bourne Ultimatum instead. And I think he needs a haircut. He does. I mean... <laughs> I don't, because there's, there's have been a couple of people who've picked on the film saying oh, Tom Cruise is too old to be sort of jumping off buildings, because he's, what, 48 now, something yes. like that? And he still looks pretty good, but you just get the sense of you're only doing this now because you need the money and your career has taken a couple of faulty steps recently. Right. Our next film has got Daniel Craig, Rooney Mara and Christopher Plummer. The hills are alive. Actually, that wasn't his version, was it? It was uh, a very slightly croaky uh, Edelweiss, wasn't it? He sang in the film. But, yes, and uh, I've already told the anecdote about yes. Stephen Fry meeting him in the bar. Uh, go back through the podcast and you'll find it somewhere. So, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, which is... Either the second adaptation or the American remake of the Swedish film of the same name. Both sources are based on the first instalment of Stieg Larsson's Millennium Trilogy, which I have to say I haven't read. This remake is directed by David Fincher, who, you know, has had a very interesting career. He started out as the director of Alien 3, which I think is very underrated. Then he made things like uh, Seven and Fight Club and Zodiac, Zodiac, which is brilliant. And most recently he got all sorts of awards attention for The Social Network, which was one of the best films of last year. So the story... As in the original, it's very difficult to sum up, but basically Daniel Craig plays a publisher or investigative journalist called Blumquist. He loses a massive libel case, which means that his business may go under. He comes into contact with an asocial computer hacker called Lisbeth Salander, played by Rooney Mara, who takes the place of uh, Numi Rapace, and Numi yeah. Rapace is now appearing in the Sherlock Holmes sequel as a sort of fortune-telling gypsy, so if you want your, your Rapace uh, share, go and see that. It is very difficult to sum up the plot in the short time that we have. Suffice to say, it's a locked room crime drama. You know what a yeah. locked room crime drama is? Where no, every single clue is a dead end and every yeah. solution seems impossible. Because Jonathan Creek's a locked room crime drama. Yeah, indeed. Yes. And uh, you know, suffice to say, there's kidnapping, there's sexual assault, there's computer hacking, and everyone has Bit dark secrets. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the phrase American remake um, naturally engenders disappointment, and you could easily argue that this, has been, this version has been created solely for the benefit of people who can't be bothered to read subtitles. <laughs> but yeah. I do think in this, unlike, for instance, um, Let Me In, the remake of Let the Right One In, I think that comment is doing this a disservice. I mean, there are clearly problems with it. It's not, I'm not entirely sure that it's necessary, because the original was quite dark and nasty in and of itself and pretty much did justice to the book. The second thing is that it is close, so close to the story and the tone of the original that you leave yourself wondering why I'm not watching the original. But, on the plus side, it's undoubtedly more cinematic than the first offering, because the original trilogy was made for television and yeah. it got released cinematically over here. Fincher has always had a great visual eye. I mean, I think he's up there with someone like Michael Mann as someone who knows digital photography inside out and produces a very yeah. particular blend of glossy cinema. So, it's a kind of swings and roundabouts thing. It doesn't solve all the problems of the original, and I would still be prompted to see the original before seeing this one, but if you just want a decent, if convoluted, thriller on Boxing Day, then it will do its job. So, a couple of good films to see on Boxing Day, then. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I think the Mission Impossible one is, is the more disappointing of the two, but that might be because I'm ambivalent towards the rest of the series. Anyway, it's quite nice, after an autumn of films with impossibly long titles, we've got two in the new year with nice, simple, short titles. <laughs> and we'll start with The Artist, shall we? Yeah, which is a modern-day silent film, uh, directed by 
um, I hope I'm pronouncing this right, Michel Hazanovicius. I'm glad you did that one. Yeah, he's a French-Lithuanian director. The story is, it was described the other day as a mashup of Singing in the Rain as, and A Star is Born, insofar as you have an established silent movie actor, uh, set in the mid-twenties. He takes on a young protégé, the talkies are then invented, and her star starts to go up while his stock goes down, and it's the conflict between them. And it plays out in a way which is both elegiac about silent cinema and self-referential because of course you could liken it in many ways to the plot of the jazz singer which was the plot didn't basically matter because yeah. it was all about this is the first sound recorded film it's interesting to have this and hugo in the cinema at roughly the same time because they're both films which are interested in the origins and the mechanics of early cinema and i don't think that it uses the silent film thing as a gimmick and yeah. you very quickly forget that you're watching a silent film just because you're going along with the characters. There are a number of touchstones for it. I mean, um, would you have seen Mel Brooks' silent movie when it came out in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, maybe? I don't remember it. No, well, that was Mel Brooks yeah. pastiching the conventions of silent films in the same way as he did with the horror conventions in Young Frankenstein. Yeah. And actually, the most famous story about Young Frankenstein is all the sets with the Frankenstein's laboratory are taken straight from the 30s version. So they just yeah. kind of went over to the Fox lot, said, have you got James Whale's stuff? I said, yeah, here we go. Um, so there's a touch with that. The other thing that it reminded me of immediately is Kiss of the Spider Woman, the Hector Babenko film from the mid-80s where you have um, William Hurt and Raul Julia yeah. as two yeah. prisoners in a South American jail and they take their minds off the fact that they're in prison by reenacting or possibly inventing scenes from classic films. And uh, it's an interesting way of sort of, you know, exploring that idea. So... If you like any of those films, I mean, I, I gather that you've seen Kiss of the Spider Woman, and it's, yes. it's, it's pretty yeah, it's good, good isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I think if you, if you enjoy any of those, then you will like this. I don't know how wide a release it's going to get, but there is a strong possibility of it winning awards, so I would catch it while you can. Right, the next one to look at uh, is The Lady. This is an absolutely fascinating uh, plot description. Uh, uh, one of those people I have great interest in. I'll let you pronounce her name because I'm not very good at names yeah. this morning. Again, apologies in advance. I think it's Aung San Suu Kyi. Yes. Who is the uh, the famous uh, Burmese or Myanmarian, whichever is correct, a pro-democracy activist who was recently released from house arrest. And this is a biopic of her which focuses not so much on her political activities but on her long-distance relationship with her British husband, who is played by David Thewlis, who, if you go I'm back... I'm a great a, fan of. Yes, if you go back a few years, um, he was in Gangster Number no. 1, in which he was absolutely fantastic. Yes. Um, so, I agree that the film sounds very interesting, in the sense that it's about the balance between the personal and the political. The only problem for me is that it's directed by Luc Besson, who is most famous for, well, directing things like Leon and The Fifth Element, which are in stark contrast to the subject matter of this, and most recently he's... He's gone into producing nuts and bolts exploitation fare that, that looks like it should have gone straight to DVD. So I think he's a little out of his depth. What you end up with is like a very extraordinary story about no, a woman who I think it's almost impossible not to admire, yeah. um, but told in a very pedestrian, televisual manner. So I think that if you go for the figure of Aung yeah. San Suu Kyi, then you'll find interesting things in it. But as a piece of cinema, it's not that great. Great. So, a few things for you to think about over Christmas and the New Year. Now, we're having a couple of Saturdays off. Yes. So, we'll be back on sometime in January. The 14th. The 14th of January. And uh, The Iron Lady is coming out uh, in between now and then. That's going to be a tad controversial. So, no doubt we'll pick on that, pick up on that when we, yeah, uh, I don't we think get we'll, back. I won't pick on it just for the sake of it. No, no, you have pick to, up on that, I Yes, think. exactly. And yes. Uh, just as a, an advance warning, we, we'll remind you about 
this nearer the time. The first cult film we'll do in 2012 will be Richard Donner's Lady Hawk. Yeah. So you so, can look forward uh, to that. I know they're showing the Iron Lady at uh, the Tyneside Cinema. I'm wondering if they're going to have uh, demonstrations outside it before it's shown. So it will <laughs> be interesting. Uh, we'll have a look back at 2011 after this. Season's greetings at this special time of year. Merry Christmas. From Lionheart Radio. Well, it is the last uh, movie hour of 2011, so we thought we'd have a little look back at the year, the good ones, the bad ones, the ugly ones, <laughs> and the, well, where do you want to start? Well, I think we should start with um, disappointments of the year, um, just in, these are films that we were both really looking forward to, but yeah. let us down. Um, do you have any that you want to uh, start Harry with? Potter. Really? Yes. Did that let you down a massive amount, though? Uh, I didn't, I, I didn't think it was a very well put together film i've got to say i don't think it's uh, treated the book particularly well okay. so i think uh yeah, i would have said that was a disappointment really okay. um the two that i would immediately pick up on and the first one is going to get your hackers up i did find the eagle a bit disappointing i mean i agree that jamie bell's really good and yes. i love everything that he's been in but i did find channing tatum's performance completely impenetrable and all it did feel like gladiator light a little bit too often so i can understand why you like it yeah. but i'm not its biggest fan i thought it was great film absolutely loved it yeah. and uh, i'd say one of um, my friends at the university was the historic advisor for it okay. so it was uh, very interesting talking to her about the experience and she she loved it as yeah, well yeah i think it was well made but just didn't grip yes. me the other big disappointment for me this year was the deep blue sea which i reviewed quite which i previewed quite glowingly a few weeks ago because i really liked terence davis yeah. i know i went in with high hopes considering how good time of the city it was and i agree with you know, all the things that terence davis has said about you know preserving british cinema and celebrating it but it did effectively amount to two hours of moaning which reminded me just how important the british new wave was and i was sitting in the cinema just watching rachel vice having another cry i was thinking what i'd really like to happen right now is malcolm mcdowell to come running through with a machine gun and just you know declaring world revolution right <laughs> yes. okay so turkeys yeah there are several i mean there are we'll rattle through several candidates that could easily have made it worse to the film and you had a number of pointless remakes. We had The Thing recently, the remake of I Spit on Your Grave, which was inexcusably horrible. Um, the utterly stupid ones like Zack Snyder's Sucker Punch, The Change Up, Immortals, and New Year's Eve. The cynical franchises, he calls Hangover Part 2, which you'll back me up on. Yeah, Pirates dreadful the, film. Pirates Absolutely. of the Caribbean, yeah, which you'll back awful. me up on. Yes. Spy Kids 4, which you may back me up on. Good directors wasting their talents, things like David Gordon Green's Your Highness, because David Gordon Green has the ability to make great films, but he's just got into a rut recently. And Green Lantern, which was directed by Martin Campbell, who made Goldeneye and Age of Darkness and knows what he's doing. Um, and then, of course, you've got a couple which were just completely pretentious, like Jean-Luc Godard's film Socialisme and Margaret. But for all the horror of those, there can only be one overall winner, and that is... Transformers Dark of the Moon in 3D. Should we just go back to when we last reviewed it? I think we should. I heard uh, Tom Davidson absolutely uh, slamming this one in his show on Tuesday night here on Lionheart Radio. Right. And I thought before you had a go, I was going to address the balance. So right. I was down in Southampton yesterday and picked up um, their local listings magazine and they've got a reviewer called Drew Bridger who says, and then you can respond. After the laughingstock Revenge of the Fallen made of the franchise, you'd be forgiven for thinking that Dark of the Moon could be just one more, more of the same from Michael Bay, turning what was once a legitimate classic animation into something that involved characters trying to appeal to the young generation and failed. Also, it had Megan Fox. The good news, Dark of the Moon looks like it could well have corrected all the mistakes the franchise has made thus far, and it doesn't star Megan Fox. Over to you, Daniel. Can I just ask, was that... 
Is that a review of the film or is that a preview based upon trailers and so forth? Um, because that's a listings magazine as opposed to review magazine. Yeah, um, I think it's. Yeah, it's, I think it's meant to be a review. Yeah, just the way it's phrased yeah. is like could have addressed yes. as opposed yeah. to has redressed. Okay, let's get it out of the way. Transformers Dark of the Moon in 3D, which is the new film by Michael Bay, who is quite possibly the worst filmmaker in the world at the moment. And no, it's the third film based on the Hasbro toys, and the story is... Story. Um, in 1969, the Apollo 11 missions go to the moon, and they found some alien robot parts on the moon, and now the robots have sort of have returned to Earth to get back this thing called the Ark, and there's going to be one final showdown between the, the Autobots and the Decepticons to stop Megatron taking over the world. But none of that is relevant. I mean, essentially, one of the things that a lot of Transformers fans have been saying in defense of this film is, oh, well, this one actually has a story. But it's like, you know, the Pirates 4 was like, oh, it's based on a novel. Yeah. You took the title from a novel and then you made <laughs> it up as you went along. There's a plot for about 20 minutes, and that plot itself is a ripoff of Arthur C. Clarke's The Sentinel, or Isaac Asimov and so forth. And then it just gets back into what it was before. Um, people often say to critics when, you know, people like you and I talk about action movies on that sort of thing, like, oh, don't take it seriously. It's just meant to be a bit of fun. Well, the problem with Transformers is that it isn't fun. It is stupid, boring, loud, incoherent, racist, misogynist, and without any redeeming feature at all. And I mean this, seriously. If you go and see it, shame on you. Right. Let me give you, first off, it's far too long. It's two hours, 34 minutes long, which is 15, yeah, I minutes, it was a long one. 15 yes. minutes longer than 2001 A Space Odyssey, a film that went from the beginning of man to the birth of a new species, and this just goes for two and a half hours of people hitting each other. Um, the final battle sequence alone goes on for an hour. And no, any editor worth their salt will tell you no battle sequence should go on for 60 minutes because no matter how good a battle sequence is, you often can't tell what's going on. In the case of Michael Bay, it's doubly so because he keeps cutting every two seconds because he can't tell a story. You've got the terrible acting. I mean, Sheila LaBeouf turns up again. He's the charisma vacuum. They get John Turturro, Francis McDormand, and John Malkovich on to do a bit of acting in inverted commas to pick up the check and you know, losing all credibility that they had during their work with the Coen brothers. The biggest problem, however, with Transformers for me is the sexualization of it. Because, now Transformers, as the reviewers yeah. talking about, you know, started off as a kid's toy. Then there was a kid's animation in the 80s. Then there was an, an animated movie. You know, it's a toy about robots hitting each other. And, you no, know, it's a kid's toy. I don't have any problem with the toy. But what Michael Bay has done is thinking, okay, well, we've got to turn it into a film about, you know, a kid's toy, but in order to make our money back, we've got to attract the teenage audience. So what we'll do is we'll put in a load of pseudo-pornographic visuals so that all the, the kids can kind of watch the big explosions while the dads can leer over the girls. Mm, that's so not good. It, it isn't good. It's not just not good. It's frankly unacceptable. I mean, there's, we mentioned that Megan Fox isn't in this, in this one, because I think at the end of the Sometime last year, there was a controversy about her calling Michael Bay Hitler. And, no, suffice to say, she didn't get cast in the new one. So in this one, the, the love interest, so to speak, of Sheila Buff is played by Rosie Huntington-Whiteley, who is an ex-Victoria's Secrets lingerie model that Michael Bay met when he was shooting an advert. And as an indication of the film's attitude to women, the opening shot of Rosie Huntington-Whiteley's character is a sequence of her walking up a staircase with a camera focusing on her backside. That's no, yes. I, yeah. see, I can see why you don't like the film. Well, yes. yeah, but the yeah. point is that it's, it's putting across a view of women, of basically women are like cars, they're just objects to be stared at and exploited. And I just, it's just not good enough, let alone good enough for a 12A certificate film. Then you've got all the other problems about, you know, the fact that it's in 3D, which is pointless. You've got the racist robots coming back from the first one with the Jamaican adverts to say, we don't do reading, which is completely unacceptable. And it is an early candidate for the worst film of the year. It is so bad, it makes Pirates of the Caribbean 4 look half decent.
early and late candidate for it, wasn't it? Yes. You didn't enjoy that very much. No, but the, I want to make this absolutely clear. I mean, I am slightly <laughs> embarrassed about just how over the top I went. <laughs> but I do stand by pretty much everything I said. The, the reason I'm, I mean, to be absolutely serious for the moment, uh, the reason I put Transformers Dark of the Moon as the worst film of the year is not because I hate action blockbusters, because I like them when they're done well, and I, it's not that I have a particular grudge against Michael Bay, although he has yet to make a half-decent film. The problem with Transformers Dark of the Moon was just the sheer amount of damage that it did to the notion of cinema. I mean, can you imagine taking sort of your eight-year-old son, as if, if that was, say, his first big action film? It would not have been inspiring in any possible way, because you want... People go to the films to be entertained, yes, I grant that, but you also want cinema to be inspiring. You want people to get involved in culture, and if you just show them a bunch of explosions intercut with what is effectively mainstream pornography, you are just damaging people's no value of what cinema can do. And it wasn't entertaining, it wasn't worthwhile, it wasn't fun. It just failed on every conceivable level. Well, let's talk about some that uh, did rather better, shall we? Yeah, let's, let's move on to the honourable mentions. So these are the ones that... Um, well, in my case, I really liked but didn't quite make the cut yes. for the top ten. But we'll start with the ones that you really liked. Well, yes, uh, I, w I was going to talk about the Jamie Bell one, but... No, which I really enjoyed. No, no, I'm but, very uh, keen to hear your view no, on this. I shall, so uh, I shall go back to uh, The Rise of the Planet of the Apes, which for me is the film of the year. Okay. Absolutely brilliant. Um, abs for me, it's, uh, it, it was what CGI was made for. It was just a really, really well done film. Uh, one of the few prequels that really did need to be told, and I think it was a very credible uh, explanation of how you might have got from um, where we are now to the uh, a, a uh, an Earth run by um, by apes, and it's a, a very chilling warning that you don't play with science and nature, mm -hmm. do you? No, uh, it's a great film, absolutely brilliant film, my favourite of the year, absolutely loved. Great. Yes, and I did love The Eagle, because no, I, I'm, I'm I know it was a bit blood and gore and uh, uh, some of the historical bits, um, despite um, Lindsay's involvement in it, I have and one or two um, doubts about, but I, I thought it was a great film. One to be watched on widescreen, I'm not sure it would work on uh, on TV. I've I, will, I will concede that, that on widescreen it does look very good. Yeah, uh, so either two great films this year, so they're my two honourable mentions. Okay. Um, I've got a few honourable mentions, um, sort of going through them in yeah. the order that they came out. Um, True Grit, I would put there. The, the oh, yeah, the that was a good film. Yes, I loved that. Yes, yes. I mean, I that think... That was really good. We can yeah. certainly agree that it's better than the John Wayne original. Yes. Um, if only because most of John Wayne's films yes. are exactly the and same. And who's the little girl in that? She was brilliant, um, wasn't she? Hayley Steinfeld. Yeah, absolutely fantastic, yeah. yes. Um, there was a... a great joke when she was uh, nominated for best supporting actress um there was i think one critic i can't remember who it was but said no why it's clearly one of those things where she was put into that category because they thought that's how she's most likely to win but on that if she's the supporting actress then the leading actress must be matt damon <laughs> <laughs> yes which he, incidentally he's really good in true yeah. grit so i think that as a cohen's effort it was a bit semi-skimmed but yeah. i do think it did justice to the novel and one of matt damon's 55 films of 20 years he has worked Worked and what he's you know, is he the new John Hurt just sort of turning up yes. and everything that's going. Um, Wakewood, um, which we mentioned in our cult film slot, which came out in sort of March April time and yeah. which I really enjoyed. Um, go and check the podcast if you want to know why. Um, nothing else because it's um good to see Hammer back in business, and of course, the woman in black is two months away.
away. So yes. I'm already looking forward to that. Um, Ferris Key, which I talked about a, a few months back, which, you know, it's very difficult to make a film about the Holocaust full yeah. stop. And it was a little melodramatic towards the end, but the young performance by um, a French actress called Mélisie Mayence is absolutely terrific. You know, for every second she's on screen, the film really works. Kill List, which certainly takes the gong for the most brutal film of the year. I mean, <laughs> if you can get through the kneecapping sequence, you're doing very well. And I struggled, and someone who sort of, you know, doesn't necessarily embrace gore but can stand most things. I thought it was a very interesting atmospheric thriller which reworked The Wicker Man and Angel Heart into something very uncomfortable. And uh, Tintin, partly because of Jamie Bell, partly because the set pieces reminded yeah. me just how good Spielberg can be when he does popcorn. I think the story is a bit stodgy, but I'm really looking forward to the sequel. Okay, so let's go on to the top 10 and number 10 a french art house film let's see if i can do at least one pronunciation right <laughs> in 2011 um poisson violent that's very that's, good that's absolutely spot on love like poison yeah which is directed by a cateau and it's been an interesting year of great debut features and out of the top 10 three of them are from first-time directors which is very encouraging um it's a coming-of-age story um set in um in and around modern day Brittany. you have a young 14 year old girl who has come home from boarding school to uh, be with her uh, mother the father of the family has walked out on the family for reasons that aren't entirely clear her mother is turning to the effect of the local priest to compensate. Meanwhile, she, the young girl, um, played by a fantastic young actor called Clara Ogard, is being wooed slash seduced by a boy who is slightly younger than her and she's preparing for her first communion in the Catholic Church. And it was a coming-of-age story which avoided so many of the clichés of the genre. It was a very discomforting in a good way a look between about uh, the clash between religion and sexuality the central performance is fantastic there's a host of complex characters who are all wrestling with their loyalty and their devotions the color scheme reminded me of three colors blue which is a very high compliment it does leave things very open-ended but it was very haunting and i think that it shows great promise for its director at number nine one i loved as well the king's speech there's not much more that we can say about this i mean yeah. it hung around in cinemas for about three or four months, screenings of it prompted... Deserved everything it won. Yes, I do think that's absolutely true. I mean, I think out of the two Oscar nominations, I think Colin Firth's performance in Single Man was slightly better, but he did deserve to win this time around. And, you know, when you've got a film that prompts standing ovations, you know you're on to a winner. And Tom Hooper is turning out to be one of our best directors, because, of course, he made The Damned United before this with Michael Sheen. Yeah. And he's currently working on... Um, two projects. One of them is an adaptation of Long Walk to Freedom, the autobiography of Nelson Mandela. And the other thing is he's doing Les Miserables, which is coming out well, next year. That should be interesting. It will. Yes. I mean, he, he should be able to do justice to Victor Hugo. I don't know whether it's based directly off the novel or off the musical, but yes. it'll be interesting either way. Now, it's a very good story with great performances. I still maintain the two best things in it are Guy Pearce as Edward VIII talking about keying yes. and the swearing sequence, simply because it's so funny hearing Colin Firth say Yes. Um, yes. But, uh, yeah, it's it's really enjoyable. I think it's up there with the madness of King George as, you know, a, a feel-good comedy with royals that actually yeah. has a little bit of substance. And, uh, yeah, it, I agree, it deserved everything it got. Well, we were um, talking about the, the voice of Antonio Banderas in Puss in Boots. Now here's the face of Antonio Banderas at number eight, The Skin I Live In. Yes, Pedro Amadova back on form after the slightly shaky uh, Broken Embraces. Um, this is the first time, I think, in a number of years that he 
hasn't worked with Penelope Cruz. And this and Black Swan could certainly share the prize of maddest film of the year. It's a melodramatic reworking of uh, essentially Eyes Without a Face, where Banderas plays a mad scientist who has uh, developed uh, a particular new kind of skin which is resistant to burning and he needs a guinea pig to uh, to try it out so to speak i mean i can't really describe the plot because it it involves flipping back and forth between different time scales and i can't really say it without giving away the twist but the twist is one of those blimey moments yeah. um i think that no it's a horror film about gender politics which treats its female characters and i use female in inverted commas for reasons <laughs> that will become clear when you've seen the film it treats them very handily it's a horror film which is focused on emotion and, and questions of identity rather than gore Great performances by Antonio Banderas and uh, Elena An Anaya, who was in Savage Grace four years ago, playing uh, Eddie Redmayne's girlfriend, who later became um, Stephen Delane's mistress in the airport sequence. Um, I don't think all of it works, but it is tantalisingly creepy, and it has stayed with me for quite a long time. And talking about Black Swan, you put that at number seven. Yes, Darren Aronofsky, again, being utterly bonkers. He has created a modern-day giallo, which is an Italian horror thriller, which whose imagery rivals anything created by Mario Bava or Dario Argento when they were at their peak. I mean, the image of Natalie Portman whirling around on the stage and growing wings to sprout like a black swan, it was you know, really great. And now, I think she deserved her Oscar for all the problems I've had with Natalie Portman in the past. I also think it's really good to see Winona Ryder back in a mainstream film which took loads of money. And yeah. uh, no, I think her performance, although it was completely turned up to 11, was up there with her work in Heathers or Edward Scissorhands. And I love Heathers, so that's that's high praise for me. It is in the end ridiculous because it is, you know, a, <laughs> it is a mashup yeah. of sort of the Red Shoes and Darrow Argento's Suspiria, amongst other things. But it's very much aware of its ripe origins. It plays into levels of hysteria which occasionally rivaled the man who fell to earth which again is a very high compliment from me so it's indulgent it's uncomfortable but it is quite profound in the way that it unnerves you and it's it's really good fun right number six a comedy apparently it's out on dvd in a couple you of weeks so surprised time. that i choose a comedy <laughs> the guard which is um the best comedy i've seen all year certainly the best black comedy it's directed by uh, john michael mcdonough who is the brother of martin mcdonough the guy who directed in bruges uh, and i think for my money this is better than in bruges although i really like in bruges um it's as it is you know what many great comedies are which is pure and undiluted entertainment the story is you have brendan gleason as a i know a, a cantankerous irish cop who is operating in the sort of the Connemara region yeah. of western ireland he teams up with an fbi agent played by don cheadle who many people will have remembered from things like uh, the oceans 11 series or hotel rwanda uh, they have to track down a, a drugs uh, smuggling ring led by a villainous mark strong who is also in the eagle and uh, no it is a, it's it's very aware of its genetic origins because it yeah. is essentially lethal weapon meets father ted with bits of high noon and the searchers <laughs> thrown into good measure and I, the way that i put it like that you think it would anything be that's got near to uh father ted. father ted must be good it is it, i do think it is brilliantly written it, it treads that very fine line of between knowing all the things that it's referring to but also playing the story straight and aiming to be funny first and arch second which for me I think in Bruges fell into the trap that the latest Shrek films did of saying, you know, we know all these references. Oh, by the way, this is actually quite funny. Whereas <laughs> this does it the other way around. Brendan Gleeson is fantastic. For me, in terms of pure 
undiluted entertainment, and I was howling with laughter when I saw this. It's, it's this year's Scott Pilgrim. And right. considering how I feel about Scott Pilgrim, <laughs> that is all the praise it needs. Right. Uh, back to Art House now, number five, Oranges and Sunshine. Uh, it's not quite Art House, but, you know, I suppose independent. It's, it's another great debut feature, this time from Jim Loach, who is the son of Ken Loach. And judging by this, he's inherited most, if not all, of his father's gift for filmmaking. It's based on the true story of social worker Margaret Humphreys, who was working in Nottingham in the mid-1980s. And she uncovered the Home Children Programme, by which um, the British, Australian and Canadian governments came to a deal to relocate thousands of British orphans and illegitimate children, yeah. sending them overseas for a new life in Australia, and many of them ended up being abused or neglected and so yeah. forth. The logic behind it being that it was cheaper to buy a one-way ticket from England to Australia than it was to care for them in England for a month. Yeah. And it could have been a very dull, triumph of the human spirit, Oscar baiting sort of film but in fact it's really gripping and really heartbreaking you have um, fantastic central performances by uh, Emily Watson playing Margaret Humphreys and Emily Watson does sensitive female characters very well Hugo Weaving's terrific and there's a very very surprising performance by David Wenham who many people will know as Faramir from Lord of the Rings and it's not it, he's yeah. sort of fallen into the, the sort of swords and sandals end of things a bit but in this he's, he plays a, a sort of belligerent Australian who doesn't really want to find where his mother is and there's a fantastic sequence where he finally wanders into his mother's house in England to have tea with her yeah. and it's implied that it's a very uncomfortable meeting and he's sort of repressing all his emotion. It's a really powerful piece of work and a little bit slow at the start but after that you will find yourself really going with it and the performances like i say are terrific into the top four now interesting top four the first one at number four is senna and i hate motor racing with a passion it's so dull but i watched this film on the plane going out to uh, singapore and i actually quite enjoyed it yeah it's certainly the best documentary i've seen all year it's directed by asif kapadia and uh, it looks at the extraordinary talent that was Brazilian Formula One driver Aidan Senna, um, sowing uh, his involvement in racing right up to his tragic death in 1994. And I think, I mean, I don't know much about motor racing either, but I think that he is still the last person to be killed in as a result of Formula One racing. I think he could be, yeah. Yeah, because they changed a lot of the rules after he died. Uh, it's assembled entirely from archive material and little scene home footage, and it does what all great documentaries do, which is that it gets you interested in a subject which you previously couldn't care less about. I mean, like I said, I'm pretty much ambivalent to Formula One. It has a lot to say about Senna's religious and political convictions, that all the scenes with him and Alain Prost clashing are very interesting, showing the, the clash of calculation versus passion and the politics yeah. of racing versus just the, the desire to compete, pure and simple. It has an eerie quality to it, particularly towards the end, uh, but the racing sequences in it are thrilling and terrifying, and it's highly recommended. Source codes at number three. Uh, which came out the same week as Oranges and Sunshine, so that was a bit of a bumper week. Uh, yes. It's the second feature from Duncan Jones, a.k.a. Zowie Bowie, so son of David Bowie. He began his career with a terrific moon two years ago, and this film has cemented his status as one of Britain's smartest and most exciting directors. It's a science fiction film where Jake Gyllenhaal plays uh, Coulter Stevens, who's an American soldier, sent back to investigate um, the bombing of a train, and he has to relive the same eight minutes over and over again until he finds out what the killing yeah. is. It's a very smart science fiction film, which proves in the same way as Inception did, that blockbusters do not have to be stupid. It handles a political 
political drama very well. It's a story about love and identity and government yeah. conspiracy in a way which is interesting, engaging, but also very smart. I think it's visually stunning, superbly written, superbly directed. He's not quite up there with Christopher Nolan, but he's getting there. Right. Number two, the one we thought would be a film of the year for quite a while, didn't we? Uh, Tinker Taylor, Soldier Spy. Yeah, which I saw for the second time at the Playhouse two weeks ago, and it was every bit as good. I think Thomas Alfredson has fulfilled on the promise of Let the Right One In. It's an atmospheric, multi-layered adaptation of John Le Carre's novel. I think if you obsess about comparing it to the TV series too much, I think you missed yeah. the point. It is flawed insofar as I wanted more of Tom Hardy, and I actually wanted it to be half an hour longer so we could yeah. get all the dialogue in. But it's directed with intelligence, and it's great to see a, a spy thriller which is so understated, because it's one of those films in which every single gesture means at least three different things. It'll be interesting to see whether or not, as a result of the success of this, and I still think Gary Oldman might win an Oscar, whether or not they have a go at Smiley's people in the near future, because that's the darker of the two stories in many ways. That'd be interesting, wouldn't it? Yeah. Uh, and we thought that would be at number one for the year until you went to see We Need to Talk About Kevin. Yes, which is an example of how great success can emerge from failure. It's directed by Lynn Ramsey, who spent base part of two years trying to get uh, The Lovely Bones adapted. She gave yeah. up with that in 2005, The Lovely Bone, and considered actually retiring from filmmaking. I mean, while The Lovely Bones eventually made it to our screens in a very flawed version by Peter Jackson, but you know, in many ways, you can almost forgive that for because it has resulted in the film of the year. It's a stunning, chilling, haunting adaptation of Lionel Shriver's novel, and Lionel Shriver herself has said that she absolutely loves it, whereby, you know, Tilda Swinton and John C. Riley are a couple. They have a, a son called Kevin who eventually grows up to murder his high school uh, classmates with a bow and arrow and gets yeah. sent to prison, and it's about the mother played by Tilda Swinton, flashing back through the 15 years of their relationship and wondering, you know, how did it happen and who was responsible and everything like that. It is a very bold artistic vision which rivals the best work of David Lynch. There are just shocking moments in it, like, you know, the intercutting of the the Pamplona Tomato uh, Festival uh, with, you know, the, the, the bloodbath yeah. at the end. I mean, it's not a, it's a 15 certificate, so you don't see that much. It's a film about the nature of evil. It's about nature versus nurture, parental negligence, denial, betrayal, the voyeuristic underpinnings of our society. It raises huge questions with no easy answers. I ended up going to a bar with someone after seeing this and talking about it for two and a half hours. Not at my insistence. She was completely yes. enthralled as well. Outstanding performances by Tilda Swinton and Ezra Miller. I think Tilda Swinton may be in with a shout of actress but more than anything else this was the one film this year which reminded me of just how powerful cinema can be i mean i came out of it in a complete daze thinking yes cinema is not just a disposable tacky thing to make money when it's done really well it can be mesmerizing and transcendent i've completely lost myself in it and if we get another film as good as this in a decade all the rubbish stuff that Michael Bay and his cohorts can throw at me <laughs> yes. can be completely forgotten because it was that good. Right. There have been some good films this year, haven't there? Yes, it has. It's been, no, like I say, it, that was an absolutely extraordinary work. And we shall be back in 2012. We will. So have a good Christmas and have a good New Year, everybody. And we're back on... 14th of January to talk about Ladyhawk. We look forward to it. A little bit of Christmas music to the news. Bye-bye. Lionheart Radio the voice of Northumberland